So who here, um, as a kid, uh, didn't ever want to go to the doctor? As a kid, show of hands. As a kid. <laughs> Next question. Who here still doesn't like going to the doctor? <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, yeah, at least when you were a kid, you got like a sucker or something. They don't give you that anymore. They look at you funny when you take one. Trust me. Um, you know, Jesus actually tells us that in our spiritual lives, we're actually still a lot like that, actually. We're still a lot like that. We don't, we, we either ourselves don't really want to go to the doctor. Sometimes we even prevent other people from going to the doctor. But um, why is it that we go to the doctor in the first place? Well, the reason we go is because there's something wrong with us, right, that needs to be corrected, that needs to be healed. But Jesus talks about how as human beings, we have a problem. And that problem is we're either preventing people from coming to the, from going to the doctor or we're not going ourselves. So let's see what he says here in Matthew chapter 9. So uh, it's a short gospel, but there's a lot packed into it. There's a lot packed into it. And what's basically going on here is the Pharisees are calling out Jesus because he's getting too close to people whose habit and whose character of life put them outside of the covenant community of Israel, the, the covenant community that God himself had defined through the Mosaic law. These are people who are not following the law in one way or another. And not only that, but are not following the law in some very notorious ways. Um, let's see, he says, Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. Tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, when they saw this, said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors at, and sinners? See, the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, the preachers, the pastors of, of their time, of Jesus's time, are throwing shade at Jesus because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. It's a really important phrase. What's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal is that tax collectors and sinners weren't just people that, you know, didn't happen to be Jewish or weren't following God's law. It was that their way of life um, made them notorious sinners. We actually have in <laughs> verse 9 here, uh, when Jesus first calls uh, Matthew, the, 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 the apostle Matthew, and it's, he was actually a, a tax collector. The problem with tax collectors uh, wasn't a reputable profession like it is today. Back then, <laughs> it's, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, it, we're, it was, we're on a whole different level uh, here. Um, <laughs> In, in early days, it wasn't, you know, you, you, would, you would hope to just deal with the IRS, but instead you had to deal with the, the Roman IRS and you had to deal with the guys that were coming to collect because those guys made their money by skimming off the top of what you gave. If you owe 100 bucks, they'd say, actually, you owe 150 and you keep that 50 for yourself. So notorious. And also we're talking about other sinners that... Uh, their, whatever it was, either their profession or habit of life, put them in direct conflict with God's law. We're talking about uh, prostitutes. We're talking about thieves, things that are, uh, that are, that are specifically 
um, enjoined against in God's law. That's who tax collectors and sinners are. But even still, what's the big deal about this? Because, you know, today, all of us, everyone, you know, we all have friends in our lives that don't believe the things that we do. That we don't agree with their habit of life or the choices that they've made. Um, but we're not used to, you know, refusing to eat with them. So what's, what's going on here? Well, what's really going on here is that the Pharisees have separ are separating themselves from these people using religion. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, those who did not follow the law, the Mosaic law, um, it wasn't just that you're doing something and I, um, I disagree with that. It actually made them ritually unclean, ritually unclean. And if you were ritually clean, meaning you were following the law and you hadn't stepped outside of it, um, then that meant that it was actually kind of difficult to sit down and, and, and eat with, with folks who were in this situation. Um, those that were, uh, the, the, the way that it worked was essentially this. You know, people who were not following the law because they were stealing or because they were, you know, uh, committing prostitution or something like that, they, if they were already doing that, then they certainly weren't going to take the trouble to follow all the dietary laws and codes, right? You remember all that in Leviticus, all those things you can't eat, all the ways you had to, had to, uh, had to prepare food. You know, it was a lot of work, big pain. So if you're, you know, if I'm already, you know, making money as a thief, why would I go off and, and, uh, and, and burden myself with all of these things? So uh, they, they ate in, a, in, in different ways. So the Pharisee is what they did because they were interested in making sure to keep the, the people of Israel set apart from the world. What they did was they did something called fencing the Torah, fencing the Torah. This is going to be a technical, your, your history lesson for, for this morning. What that meant is that if the law requires this, then we're going to say, you really should be doing this, right? If the law requires that you not ritually defile yourself, then you probably shouldn't even be around people who are doing that, right? Not required in God's law, but as a, as a human tradition, something is saying, we're gonna, we're gonna, we, we, we think God's law is so important that we're gonna go even the extra mile. And even though that might be kind of a, a, a good impulse, you know, to be really, really devoted in that way, the result of it was that it was separating themselves from people who were outside of that, separating themselves, creating this, this distance, this buffer. For the Pharisees, what it, religion had become was that it was for its own sake. It was for its own sake, creating religious traditions to help them keep other religious traditions, maintaining their separateness from the world. It was about accommodating those that were inside the covenant with no regard for those who were outside of it. We're taking care of our own here. We're circling the wagons and we're doing everything possible to make sure everything's all good in here. And we're gonna make sure that we're as far away as possible from all y'all out there. That's what religion had become. That's what the covenant had become in the minds of the Pharisees. But Jesus puts it differently. He says, you know what? You've got it all wrong. You've got this whole thing wrong. In verse 12, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't want to separate himself from the brokenness of the world. Just the opposite. Jesus is like a brokenness magnet. He wants to draw all of this to himself. He says this, this whole people of God thing, the, the Messiah that you, th- that you believe is going to come and lead your people, that Messiah isn't just a political leader or a religious leader. He's more like a doctor. And you know what? Doctors don't set up shop around healthy people. They're hoping for sick people. That's where the business is. And as he usually does, Jesus quotes the Bible at them. Hosea 6.6, 6, we have it right here. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Sacrifice, burnt offerings, these were the rituals. This was the ritualism that the Pharisees were, were protecting. And again, it's straight from God. Good stuff. But these were the things that they were taking so much care to, to fence around, to keep people away from. The point is that God's desire is for people to be truly converted in the heart. His desire was never just to have a special people, just to have it. It's to use his special people to bless the whole world. That was the whole point in Genesis 12 verse 2, I will make uh, the call of Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is reminding them of the whole point of why we started this whole covenant people of God thing in the first place. And it is for that same purpose that Christ has gathered his church. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, to his church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go get out in that world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, what he's done is he's, he's reversed the whole flow of this. Pharisees are worried about the sin infection getting in. Jesus is saying, you, I'm actually giving you the medicine, right? Go out and cure. Remember in the temple when that veil was torn in two. It was a message to us saying, listen, you don't have to worry about the sin getting in. Now the sin's got to worry about you getting out, right? You're not trapped in, I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. Now get out there and go bring all the broken to yourself. They're not going to rub off on you. You're going to rub off on them. And they're going to join you, and they're going to be part of you, and they're going to be part of your family. This is what it means to actually be on mission with Jesus instead of just being the church. Have you ever heard that phrase said, "Be the, just be the church? I actually heard it directly. We, uh, a church that, it wasn't actually my particular congregation, but I was, I, was the, the, um, I was a sister church to this one church, and that church got a new rector. And the rector came in and said, what's the vision of your church? What's your, like, vision? Do you have a vision statement? Um, and they were like, no. And they're like, well, what's the, what's the vision of this congregation? How would you define it? And they said, we want to be the church. And he said, okay, check. You've got that done. You are the church. So what's next? <laughs> what is your vision? What is your mission? The problem is that when we start caring about this, 
when we stop caring about actual people, actual broken people's lives, then all of the religious rituals and stuff that we do, Jesus says it's like a nice looking tomb. It's like a whitewashed tomb. I'd, I'd, I'd use a different metaphor for today. One time I went to a historical museum in New England where they used to make, they used to make ships. They used to make these big, beautiful ships. And uh, they, they had preserved the, uh, the factory, like the assembly lines, all the places where the guys like, you know, made the joists and the, the planks and, and whatever. I, I learned a lot. I, I really did. Uh, I don't remember it much, but I remember this beautiful factory. And all the stuff that was in there, all the machinery is gorgeous. It was like really amazingly made, beautiful stuff, you know, beautiful things. But the thing is, it wasn't really making anything anymore. It wasn't doing anything. It looked nice. It probably felt nice to go in and sweep the place and, and kind of, you know, be in there. But it wasn't actually doing anything anymore. That's what the church is like when we forget this mission. I have not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. In Luke, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, you remember uh, there was another character in that parable. Remember the other guy that the parable ends with? Remember there's a younger son and he uh, wastes, he, he, he screws up his life and then comes back and the father receives him. But there's another character, there's an older brother, remember? The older brother? Um, and uh, the, the, the older brother actually is so indignant that this, pro, the, this son of yours that's wasted all of your money, you would come back and treat him this nicely? You know, what, about, what about me? What about what you do for me? I never did anything wrong. And Jesus, in telling that parable, really the point of that parable is Jesus telling the Pharisees the exact same thing he's telling them here now. He's like, look, did you know that God gets really, really excited about seeing lost sheep come home? And you're like an older brother who just had his younger brother return home, and you won't even go into the party because you're so sour toward him. Listen, if we truly follow God, we should be overjoyed to see those who are sinners inside of his house, those from the outside coming in, because it means that those who have lived far from God have drawn near to him. That means they're coming and they're actually, they have an opportunity to get the medicine. That's what that means. This is what the whole church is for, to see outsiders come in, not to see insiders taken care of, burnished in bronze, and set apart. We're in a family business here together at Redemption. It's not just me. It's not just the clergy. It is salvation from sin. It's not browbeating sinners. It's not avoiding sinners. It's not creating a home away from sinners. Because if you count yourself a Christian, if you wear that cross around your neck, then you ought to know that when you were dead in your sin, Christ died for you. The great physician came near you first. You were the sinner that was lost in sin. And Jesus healed you and he continues to heal you. You think the sin issue is totally done once you get baptized and you get in the body of Christ? Guys, it is only the beginning. It's only the beginning. Our first thought, therefore, ought to be gladness when we see and, and joy 
to see those who are living lives that are far from God, really way outside of those commandments that we affirmed this morning, living uh, uh, ways of life that they don't even know themselves are apart from the will of God, we ought to be glad and joyful when we see them coming near to us, wherever we are, wherever we are, we ought to be joyful. Get in on the family business is what Jesus is saying. I've set up a hospital. I want you guys to work with me on this. But Jesus's words also challenge us in another way. Listen again. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those who are sick. And folks, we have got to admit, we have to be able, if we're going to really come to the doctor, we have got to admit that we're actually sick, that we've got a problem. We have a sin problem. Whether we're inside the church or we're outside the <laughs> church, we have the same problem. I've talked to you all about this before. Sin is like this chronic disease that is inside of us. And it manifests in a lot of ways. There's a lot of symptoms of that disease. And it manifests, it's, it's different for different people. It always is. It, uh, Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, he, he lists them all, sexually immoral, not all of them, but quite a few of them, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greediness, drunkenness, those who are revilers, basically people who say mad thing, it's just, just go out and kind of uh, heckle and revile people, you know? We don't do any of that today, do we? <laughs> Swindlers, people who steal. All of these things are symptoms of the underlying illness, but we all suffer from the exact same disease. The illness is the same. And for everyone, the cure is the same. In verse 11, Paul says, you know, some of you used to be like this, but you have been washed clean. You have been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the spirit of our God. But the thing is that we have to have the humility to admit that we have a, a problem. We have to be willing to admit that we're sick so that we can go to the doctor. And unfortunately, the devil and the world, the whole world with him, does not want us to admit that we have that problem. Because and the reason he doesn't want us to admit that is because he wants to keep us away from that great physician, from his word, from prayer to him, from nearness to him. His desire is to separate us, get us far away from the physician, from the healing that we need. That way, we won't be able to get the cure. And so he tries to persuade us that we actually don't have any problem at all. We don't have a problem. The church has a word for that. Long, long ago, in the earliest days of the church, the Desert Fathers recognized that human beings have this tendency, and they named it, and that word is pride. Pride was recognized as the worst of all of the vices. And it isn't so much something we do, again, it's not one of the symptoms, as it's the underlying attitude that we have. Pride was recognized to be worse than any of the you know, individual sinful acts that we may do because it's the only sin that keeps us so self-assured that we would actually avoid fe that feeling of conviction 
that would bring us to the doctor, that feeling that we, there's something wrong with me and I need the help of a physician. It's like the exact opposite of being convicted, feeling sorry, opposite of that broken spirit, that contrite heart that God requires of his people. It keeps us puffed up. By keeping us puffed up, it actively keeps us away from God. And listen, there's, there's, there's a bunch of different kinds of pride. There's churchy pride. There's worldly pride. Churchy pride means counting up and kind of evaluating ourselves by all the, the good things and the deeds and, and the things that people say about us and taking credit for that instead of giving all of that glory to God. Churchy pride is saying, you know, the thing that really sets me apart is not how good God is, but it's how good I am. Really, it replaces, you know, the great I am with the I am of the self, actually elevates us to a position of God. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the scriptures from the prophets all the way through Jesus says, you are in serious, serious danger. Like the elder brother, you could be in the house, kind of like in the household, but you are not coming into the party. You are not entering through grace. He says, be watch that. Watch out. Only by the grace of God have you been saved. Only by his grace. Don't, don't let the things that you've done, or the, you know, the good things people say about you or the, the people that respect you trick you into thinking, I'm good. I'm fine, actually. And worldly pride, well, I mean, worldly pride, look, worldly pride is all around us. And we've named a month after it now. Worldly pride will all, listen to me, worldly pride will always take sin and find a way to turn it into something to be recommended and to be celebrated. It will always use that to find a way to ensnare and to confuse people. Again, why? Same thing, so that they will not go to the doctor so they won't go and be healed. In ways saying that actually the, the, the sickness that I have, it's, it's, it's actually not a sickness, it's who I am. In m many ways and by any means necessary, the devil will convince any of us, whether we're inside of the church or we're outside of it, not to go to the doctor daily, weekly, not to have that contrite spirit. Either it's because we think we're fine already or because our sins really aren't sins at all. It doesn't matter, the result is the same. But the good news is there's an antidote. There's an antidote to this pride. The spirit gives it to us and that is humility, humility. Pride, strong and boastful as it is, cannot stand against a humble spirit, a contrite heart, the one that puts others before yourself and to say, I'm not good, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And you can be too. Humility is the great enemy of pride, and it is the church's greatest weapon against this sin. And listen, if the world is, if the world is, is lost to pride, then let the church be found on its knees in genuine <coughs> humility, and we will reap a great harvest of souls by the habit and the character of our lives. May we be always, you know, like finding the spots in our own eyes before we try and take it out of others. 
May we be always treating each other with genuine charity, genuine gentleness of spirit, that that genuine thing. And the thing is that, you know, Paul tells us you should start with your own. (laughs) Begin, you know, in this church, it's like a training ground for humility. We get to treat each other like that first. And then we can go out and treat the world the same way. May we always be treating others with the genuine charity and gentleness of spirit, the lowliness of our Savior who won his great victory, not on a war horse, not at the head of a uh, political campaign, but on a wooden cross, not on a worldly throne. So Lord, save us. Save us from pride. Save us from anything that would cause us to refuse the grace of Christ. Give us your genuine humility of spirit that we may turn from our wicked ways. Draw near to you, O Lord, great physician, and be saved. Amen.